Chapter 11, Part 1 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fight for Young Dung Po If Young Dung Po is lost, Seoul also will fall. This was the warning note sounded during the conferences of the Red Korean military leaders in Seoul. So important did they consider the industrial suburb that a regiment of the 18th NKPA Division was assigned to the defense of the built-up area on the south bank of the Han. Slogans of this sort were a favorite form of communist inspirational literature, and they may have served to buck up the defenders. From the tactical standpoint, however, the quoted catchphrase was illogical. Yong Dung Po was untenable. Squatting on the low ground at the confluence of the Kalchan and Han rivers, the town was an isolated landmark of only symbolic significance. It was separated from Seoul by two miles of sand and water, and the only connecting links, the old railroad and highway bridges, had long since been destroyed. Thus, what had once been a vital communications hub south of the Han was now a veritable dead end. While the Reds in Seoul were able to ferry troops and material across the exposed river and sand spit by night, they could not hope by this primitive method to meet the logistical requirements of a regimental garrison confronted by a modern juggernaut of combined arms. Nevertheless, the North Koreans chose to make a fight of it, and in addition to the hundreds of troops in Yongdungpo, they sent over considerable artillery and armor that could have been put to better use in the defensible terrain around Seoul. Three Hills Taken by 1-5 Hill 118 was the principal terrain feature between Kimpo Airfield and Yongdungpo. The dominating peak being about three miles from the former and two from the latter. Giant spurs from the main ridge extended northward toward the Han and eastward to the bed of the Kalchan, beyond which lay Yongdungpo. At the end of one easterly projection were the twin caps, hills 80 and 85. Paralleling the Han River, a modern highway led from Kimpo, passed north of Hill 118, skirted 80 and 85, then bridged the Kalchan to enter Yongdungpo from the northwest. It will be recalled that the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, occupied high ground generally east of Kimpo Airfield at the close of 18 September. During the night, Lt. Col. Murray ordered the unit to seize Hills 80 and 85 the next day. To gain these gates to Yongdungpo, it would be necessary to take Hill 118, and the battalion commander, Lt. Col. Newton, formulated his plan accordingly. Company B would leave its positions on the old objective easy at dawn and envelop Hill 118 from the south. Company C would attack frontally from objective Fox, assist the enveloping force by taking one of 118's spurs, then continue eastward to seize 80 and 85. Company A was to remain behind at objective easy for the purpose of guarding the approaches to the airfield. At dawn on 19 September, Company C atop Objective Fox was greeted by a hail of mortar and small arms fire. Under this shield, part of a 500-man enemy force attacked the Marine position from the east, while the remainder attempted to move along the Yongdungpo-Kimpo Highway, 
obviously bent on reaching the airfield. Other large NKPA concentrations were spotted at the base of Hill 118. Charlie Company's organic weapons roared into action along with the Battalion 81s. While the Marine fire cut swaths through the exposed enemy ranks, Baker Company lunged forward to envelop Hill 118 according to plan. Air and artillery paved the way so effectively that Captain Fenton's unit gained the commanding peak about 1,100 without suffering a casualty. This left the North Korean attackers, who had been contained by Charlie Company, trapped between Objective Fox and Hill 118. After losses of 300 dead and 100 prisoners, the Red Force broke into a few small bands that fled across the highway to the fields and villages bordering the Han. Companies seized casualties in stopping the attack and moving forward to its spur on Hill 118 were two killed and six wounded. As the two assault companies reorganized on the newly won ridge, Fenton spotted a large number of Red troops on Hill 80, now about 1,000 yards away. He directed an airstrike from his advanced position, and the Corsairs not only cut down many of the North Koreans, but completely routed the survivors. While the planes worked over the enemy positions on the high ground, the Marines of Company B observed a growing throng of NKPA soldiers in the vicinity of the Kalchan Bridge leading to Yongdungpo. Some of the Reds were milling around, but others were filing across the undamaged span and disappearing into a knot of warehouses and huts at the far end. Fenton radioed for artillery fire just as communist machine guns and an AT weapon opened up on Baker Company from positions across the bridge. Four times firing for effect with battery four rounds, the Marine Howitzer sent a total of 96 shells crashing into the enemy positions within the space of a few minutes. The explosions neutralized the bridge area, but the span itself was badly damaged in the process. First Lieutenant Peterson led Company C along the highway toward Hills 80 and 85 at 1430. Owing to the press of time, the area between the road and the Han River was not cleared, with the result that small bands of enemy were left free to roam the fields and make their presence felt later. The 3rd Platoon, under 2nd Lieutenant Harold L. Daw, Jr., peeled off the column and attacked Hill 80 shortly after 1500. Following at an interval of 500 yards, 2nd Lieutenant Robert H. Corbett's 1st Platoon continued along the pavement toward Hill 85. A platoon of A tanks supported the two-pronged assault along with Charlie Company's mortars and machine guns, and by 1650 the two heights were secured. In the wake of the airstrike called down by Fenton, the attacking infantry had encountered practically no opposition. Yongdungpo, bristling with communist armament, rumbled its challenge from the low ground 500 yards east of Hill 85. Taken under heavy fire by artillery, mortars, and small arms, Company C was forced to dig in on the reverse slopes of its high ground, there to await the expected counterattack after nightfall. Enemy Minefields Encountered As noted previously, the 2nd and 3rd Battalions, 1st Marines, spent the night of 18 to 19 September astride the Incheon Seoul Highway, a mile east of Sosa. The 1st Battalion, deployed over a broad front in the hills south of the road, was to be relieved in the morning by the 32nd Infantry, 
so that Colonel Puller could shift his regiment to the left. Since the relief did not take place as early as expected, Puller ordered his 2nd and 3rd battalions to attack at 10.30, leaving 1-1 in position to await replacement by the Army unit. On the left of the highway, 3-1 jumped off from Hill 123 with Companies H and I in the assault. The battalion's mission was to clear a rambling ridge complex that extended more than three miles before stopping short of Hill 118. Assigned as a final objective was the Terminal Height, Lookout Hill, facing western Yongdungpo across the wide bottomland of the Kalchan. Considering the formidable cross-compartment approach, the assault companies led by the Battalion S3, Major Joseph D. Trompeter, made good progress against enemy resistance described as light but stubborn. At a cost of two killed and fifteen wounded, the Marines combed the vertical wilderness and seized Lookout Hill late in the evening. The attack was almost too successful, for the battalion was now out on a limb. The closest friendly forces were on Hill 118, several hundred yards to the north, and along the Inchon Sol Highway, about a mile to the south, as will be shown. The 2nd Battalion could boast comparable success along the highway in the course of 19 September, but gains were made under far different circumstances. Spearheaded by Charlie Company tanks commanded by Captain Richard M. Taylor, the battalion had advanced only 500 yards in the morning when the lead M26 was enveloped in a violent explosion. With one track and two road wheels destroyed, the steel monster settled into the crater left by the detonation of a wooden box mine. Simultaneously, the infantrymen of Company F came under heavy small arms fire from Hill 72 to the right front. In an attempt to sight in on the enemy positions, other tanks tried to bypass the minefield in the highway, only to discover that explosives were concealed in both road shoulders as well. Howitzers of the 11th Marines registered on Hill 72, and during the ensuing bombardment, a VMF-214 flight appeared overhead to lend further assistance. Despite his generous use of supporting arms, Lieutenant Colonel Sutter was forced to commit all three rifle companies to the fight. Tank gunners tried to detonate mines embedded in the road with machine gun fire, but without success. It remained for 1st Lieutenant George A. Babe's 2nd Platoon Charlie Company Engineers to remove the obstacles under fire. Darting forward on the bullet-swept highway, the engineers placed snowball charges of C-3 on the wooden boxes, then took cover while the mines exploded. After 2-1 had driven the enemy from the area with the assistance of Marine Air and Artillery, the job of clearing the 250-yard minefield proceeded under less hair-raising conditions. To get the armor back into the fight as soon as possible, Babe ignored the explosives embedded in the highway shoulders. Word was passed back to this effect, but several jeeps and trucks were lost later when drivers failed to heed the warning. While the tanks remained on the sideline, companies D and F punched about a mile down the highway against continuing resistance, which gradually solidified at Hill 146. Like 72, this ridge was on the right side of the road in the 32nd Infantry Zone of Action. Since the Army unit had yet to enter the picture, the Marine flank was becoming more and more exposed with each forward bound by 2-1. Sutter had no choice but to commit troops beyond his zone. 
Not only were the Reds entrenched on Hill 146 with machine guns and field pieces, but they had blocked the highway with trees and other encumbrances. Thus, while Fox Company seized a knoll on the left, Dog Company invaded Army territory and battled its way to the top of Hill 146's western spur. VMF-214 plastered the peak itself, and the 11th Marine shelled enemy positions across the whole battalion front. It was 1300 when the minefield to the rear was finally cleared, enabling Charlie Company tanks to move forward in an attempt to overtake Sutter's infantry. Within sight of the fighting around Hill 146, the armor ground to a halt before the roadblock of trees, rice bags, and other debris. A dozer tank rumbled ahead, smashed through the first obstruction, then went up in a cloud of smoke. Under the litter on the road lay a second minefield, 75 yards long. Again, the tank men watched from behind as engineers cleared the highway and 2-1 drove forward out of sight. By 1730, the Marine infantry had completely smashed the main enemy concentration on the highway. When the surviving Reds fled, they exhibited the same determination that had characterized their stand throughout the day. Weapons and equipment were strewn along the road, and the Marines captured a truck loaded with mines as further evidence of the hasty retreat. Sutter ordered 2-1 to hold up at 1900 and dig in astride the highway. The 4,800-yard advance had cost the Marine unit four killed and 18 wounded against 350 casualties and five prisoners for the North Koreans. Since all written and personal accounts agree that 19 September amounted to almost one continuous firefight for the 2nd Battalion, the amazing contrast in friendly enemy loss figures must be attributed to the sound employment of Marine supporting arms. As mentioned earlier, 2-1's positions for the night were a mile southeast of the 3rd Battalion on Lookout Hill. Company E entrenched on high ground to the left of the highway, 4,000 yards from Yongdungpo, while D and F manned a long, low hill on the right. Because the latter height ran parallel to the road, the line formed by Dog and Fox was at a right angle to that held by Easy. Sutter's choice of this L-shaped defense would shortly prove to be an extremely wise one. NKPA counterattacks of 20 September. The right flank of the 1st Marines was bare. Not until 1200, 19 September, did the 32nd Infantry begin relieving 1-1 in its old position southeast of Sosa. Liaison between the Marine and Army units at this time was weak. Apparently, many of the Marines were unaware that General Barr's Operation Order No. 2 for the 7th Infantry Division did not call for a jump-off by the 32nd until 0630 on the 20th. At that time, the Army Regiment would attack a series of objectives which included Hill 146 and other high ground above the road. Thus, the schedules north and south of the highway were running one day apart and it would take the enemy himself to straighten the line when he slammed the gates of Yongdungpo. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion 1st Marines, entrucked below Sosa for its circuitous journey from the right flank of the regiment to the left, where it was to relieve the 1st Battalion 5th Marines on hills 118, 80, and 85. The 11-mile trip via Sosa and Wangjongni was uneventful, except that the troops had to dismount at the latter village and proceed on foot over the primitive road. 
With the first increment to arrive at Wong Jong Ni, Captain Robert H. Barrow, commanding Company A of 1-1, set a rugged pace to get his troops on top of Hill 118 before dark. Relieving Company B of 1-5, he expected Charlie Company to pass through and replace its opposite of the 5th Marines on Hills 80 and 85. It was dusk, and Companies B and C were still on the move when Hawkins of 1-1 met Newton of 1-5. They briefly discussed the lay of the land, the latter's tactical disposition, and the requirement that 1-5 assemble at Kimpo within a matter of hours to prepare for the river crossing the next day. Time, space, and terrain factors were too great, Hawkins concluded, for his battalion to assume all positions then occupied by the other. To facilitate the rest of the relief, which now would take place in darkness, he ordered Charlie Company to occupy Hill 118 with Abel and directed Baker to dig in on a southern extension of the Big Ridge. Having relieved Fenton on Hill 118 before nightfall, Barrow enjoyed the opportunity to reconnoiter 1-5's area and to realize the tactical significance of Hills 80 and 85. When it became apparent that Company C would not arrive before dark, he radioed the Battalion S-3 for permission to move his company to the Twin Peaks immediately, explaining that Charlie Company of 1-5 could remain in position no later than 2100. Since Hawkins had already decided against taking over too much unfamiliar ground after daylight, Major Bridges turned down the request. Thus, at 2100, with no relief in sight, the 5th Marines unit withdrew from the two heights as ordered. Company C of 1-1 reached Hill 118 at 2200 and went into position with Barrow's outfit for the night. Unknown to the enemy, Hills 80 and 85 had become a no-man's land. While the battalions of the 1st Marines settled down for the night in a three-mile arc facing western Yongdungpo, the North Korean commander within the town organized part of his garrison for two separate thrusts against the closing vice. In one case, he would win by default. In the other, he would see more of his limited resources go down the drain. Just before dawn of 20 September, the Marines on Hill 118 were alerted by a furious clatter of small arms and automatic weapons far out to the east. Daylight disclosed that the enemy was assaulting Hills 80 and 85. When the North Koreans finally discovered that their objectives were unoccupied, they abruptly ceased firing, surged over both crests, and entrenched in about a company's strength. An attempt was made to extend the counterattack to Hill 118, but companies A and C, backed by a flight of VMF 323, threw the Reds back with ease. During the early morning blackness which found the enemy filling the vacuum on Hills 80 and 85, a stronger North Korean force, estimated at a battalion, marched out of Yongdungpo toward 2-1's position astride the Incheon Seoul Highway. In the van of the Red Column were five T-34 tanks preceded, oddly enough, by a truck loaded with ammunition. Other vehicles, laden with less sensitive supplies, were safely interspersed among the infantry in the long file. It will be remembered that companies D and F, the latter and the four, occupied high ground positions parallel to and south of the highway. Farther back, Easy Company's line tied in at a right angle and extended to the north of the road. The troops of Fox Company, tense with anticipation in their advanced deployment, 
heard the first distant sounds of clanking armor and racing engines sometime before 0400. The noise grew steadily louder until, at 0430, the shadows of the ammunition truck and T-34s passed beneath the marine defenses and continued along the road toward Easy Company's lines. At the latter, Private Oliver O'Neill Jr. rose from behind his machine gun and shouted a challenge to the truck, which by this time was well out in front of the enemy tanks. O'Neill was cut down by automatic fire in answer, and pandemonium broke out on the highway. Obviously, the North Koreans had stumbled into it again, just as they had done at Ascom City. Two T-34s stopped short of Easy Company's front and opened up wildly. Companies D and F in turn exploded with machine guns, small arms, grenades, and mortars against the flank of the enemy column, while E fought to deny further passage along the road. Under the hail of fire from above, the Red soldiers milled about in panic and were slaughtered. Some flung themselves into roadside ditches, where the crowding only increased the odds of destruction. Others sought escape by scrambling up the slopes, into the very muzzles of Dog and Fox Company weapons. The T-34s began to lurch back and forth like trapped animals. Owing either to mines laid by marine engineers or a grenade thrown from above, the ammunition truck exploded in a brilliant spectacle of pyrotechnics. In the midst of the Fuhrer, Private First Class Monaghan moved across the hillside from Company F's front with his rocket launcher. Observing his progress against the backdrop of flames from the truck, his comrades either held or shifted their fire to protect him. Monaghan closed on the lead tank and wrecked it with one 3.5-inch projectile. Approaching the second T-34 under intense fire, he paused and took aim with imperturbability. Again, his rocket connected with a roar, and the black hulk on the road turned into a blazing furnace. Silhouetted against the hillside, the Marine leveled his weapon at a third armored vehicle just as it was pivoting around to retreat. But at this moment, an enemy machine gun found the mark, and Monaghan, killer of tanks, fell dead. Although the North Korean attack was thus smashed at the outset, fighting along the highway continued until daylight. In addition to the two T-34s destroyed, another was captured intact with its crew. The 11th Marines closed the back door of the highway with a curtain of high explosive, thereby sealing the fate of the Red Battalion. Dawn of 20 September revealed a scene of utter ruin across the Marine front. The highway was littered with burnt NKPA trucks, tanks, and equipment. Heaped on the road, in ditches, and along hillsides were 300 enemy dead. Recapture of Hills 80 and 85 For the most part, fighting around Young Dungpo on 20 September was a contest of the giants. Supporting arms of both sides exchanged heavy blows, and the 1st Marines reported with business-like frankness that it was leveling the southern part of Yongdungpo, which is infested with enemy. North Korean mortars, tanks, and field pieces pumped hundreds of rounds out of positions in the center of town and the eastern outskirts. Marine planes and howitzers replied by smothering red concentrations and emplacements with literally thousands of missiles of all types. The 4th Battalion, 11th Marines, commanded by Major William McReynolds, 
fired 28 concentrations in the course of a day, and Lieutenant Colonel Merritt Edelman's 2nd Battalion expended 1,656 rounds in 21 missions. It was the precision firing of these two units which had supported 2-1 so effectively during the pre-dawn counterattack. Battery C, 1st 4.5-inch Rocket Battalion, FMF, moved to advanced positions in the morning to increase the pressure on the Yongdungpo garrison. Land counterpart of the LSMRs, which rocked the Inchon waterfront on D-Day, this unit had seen little action to date, owing to the lack of M48 fuses for its missiles. Banking on substitute detonating devices, M51 for 105mm and 155mm howitzer shells, First Lieutenant Eugene A. Bush ordered his gunners to fire a test salvo of 24 rockets. No visible effect being noticeable from his OP, the battery commander then called for a full ripple of 144, enough high explosives to flatten a good portion of the town. Again the big missiles plowed into the target area with a dull thud, and Bush withdrew his battery to the rear. The M48 fuses did not arrive until 28 September, with the result that the potent Marine rocket artillery was sidelined until the closing days of the operation. Colonel Puller's tactics during the bombardment on 20 September were designed to align the 1st Marines for the actual assault of Yongdungpo, planned for the next day. It was necessary to occupy and strength all the final approaches to the town, so that the full weight of the regiment could be brought to bear against the defending garrison. From left to right, therefore, the schedule of operations on the 20th was as follows. 1. 1st Battalion to seize hills 80 and 85. 2. 3rd Battalion to remain in position on Lookout Hill. And 3. 2nd Battalion to advance to the first of two highway bridges which span branches of the Kalchan just outside of Yongdungpo. These limited attacks would also provide time for the 32nd Infantry to catch up on the right. The day's mission for the Army unit was to attack over a six-mile front and secure among other objectives, towering Tongduk Mountains south of the MSR and two miles from Yongdungpo. Shortly after first light, Lieutenant Colonel Hawkins reached the crest of Hill 118 and established his OP. He was in time to see Abel and Charlie Companies repulse disconnected red elements moving on the Marine lines from Hills 80 and 85. While the battalion commander issued his order for the attack, Major William L. Bates, Jr., commander of 1-1's Weapons Company, set up his Supporting Arms Center to cover the impending assault. Hawkins gave Company C the mission of taking Hills 80 and 85. Deciding on a southerly approach, the company commander, Captain Robert P. Ray, ordered his 2nd platoon to lead off by clearing a village sprawled across the route to the lower peak. 2nd Lieutenant John N. Guild moved out at the head of the skirmishers and led them over 500 yards of intervening low ground. Nearing a knoll which topped the clump of thatched huts, the platoon came under heavy small arms fire and was stalled. Ray immediately committed the rest of his company in a two-pronged attack which wrapped around the flanks of Guild's line and smashed through the North Korean resistance. After a hot firefight, the surviving Reds fled to Hill 80, and Company C occupied the village in Knoll by early afternoon. 
The executive officer, First Lieutenant James M. McGee, led a six-man patrol eastward to clean out a small nest of holdouts, while Ray reorganized the company for the assault on the Twin Caps. Charlie Company's tactics in advancing on the enemy's southern flank were ideal from the standpoint of weapons and able companies, which supported the attack from Hill 118. The two units could actually witness the progress of the assault troops across the 1st Battalion's front so that mortars and machine guns at the base of fire had only to shift gradually left to support the Marine advance. Late in the afternoon, Ray launched a double envelopment of Hill 80, 2nd Lieutenant Henry A. Comiskey led his 3rd platoon around to the right, and 2nd Lieutenant William A. Cravens first swung through the low ground on the left. A few huts concealing snipers were demolished by 3.5-inch rockets, but otherwise the Marines met little resistance as they moved over the crest of the objective early in the evening. With the first signs of darkness already in the sky, Ray lost no time in preparing for his third double envelopment of the day. The remnants of the North Korean company were entrenched on the crest and forward slopes facing the Marine attack of Hill 85, obviously intent on making a determined stand. Anticipating Charlie Company's tactics, the Red Leader had bent back both flanks to prevent encroachments on the sides or rear. Thus, though both Marine assault platoons swung out to stab at the enemy flanks, the communist disposition actually relegated each maneuver to a separate frontal attack. Craven's platoon and Charlie Company machine guns, under 1st Lieutenant Francis B. Carlin, covered the attackers from a base of fire on the northern slopes of Hill 80. Moving aggressively through a hail of bullets, the 2nd platoon on the left crossed the low ground and drove up the western incline of the objective. Almost to the top, Guild was grievously wounded by a machine gun burst. On the right, Lieutenant Comiskey paved the way in the face of heavy resistance. Nearing the crest of Hill 85, the officer abruptly bounded ahead of his platoon and went over the top. He jumped into a machine gun emplacement and was dispatching the last of five occupants when his lead skirmishers caught up with him. He ran forward again to clean out another North Korean position in a single-handed attack. By this time, the Reds on the eastern side of the hill had had enough. Those who still had hides to save pelted down the northern slopes in the direction of the mouth of the Kalchon River, where the stream was spanned by the now damaged bridge. Guild's platoon, inspired by its leader who remained in action despite a mortal wound, gained the summit shortly after Comiskey's unit. Captain Ray, following closely behind, later described his meeting with Guild on the slope as follows. He stayed on his feet and turned toward where I was climbing 20 yards behind him. He dropped at my feet and made every effort to remain conscious long enough to tell me how his squads were attacking and pleading with me to keep them attacking. I called for a corpsman. He tried to refuse, saying that he had a wounded man who needed one more than he did. Lieutenant Guild died shortly afterwards. End of chapter 11, part 1, read by Aaron Bennett.